I'm on Aslan's side. Even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it, I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Chase. And I'm Kel. Thank you for joining us. Just a reminder that today we are talking about the sixth book in the series, The Silver Chair, but general spoiler warning for the whole Narnia series, as well as a heads up that we go on tangents into other stories and things we enjoy. We'll do our best to give spoiler warnings if there's anything like that that we need to. But today we are discussing Silver Chair, Chapter 12, The Queen of Underland. The Queen of Underland. Kind of wish that it was the Queen of the Underland, but I guess Underland is the name of this country. But yeah, it's Ukraine, not the Ukraine. Get it right. Mm, the Ukraine. Well, Chase, if you'd have it, I'd love to give you a summary. Uh, you can have it. You did write it, so I would assume that you'd be okay You know, with this uh, you know, being shared. Uh, but we come upon two Earthmen entering the room, but... Rather than walking in, they stood on either side of the door, and they were followed by the last person our gang expected, though they definitely should have. The Lady of the Green Kirtle, the Queen of Underland, the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino. Wait, hold on. I may have gotten carried away there. She took in the situation and turned very white, but Jill thought it looked more like anger than fear. They told the Earthmen to leave uh, until she calls them once again, and then the Witch Queen shut and locked the door. She turned and asked why the prince was unbound and why the silver chair was broken. Oh, remember that silver chair that we talked about? It's 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 just in pieces over there. Uh, and then the two and who these strangers were with him. He answered that there would be no more need of the chair. The sorceries were ended forever. And not only that, but her plan of ambushing a nation above to make him king was plain villainy, which she denounces. And he is the king Caspian's son, and it was his purpose and duty to leave her court and return to his country at once. Uh, and she then crossed the room and took from a box some green powder that she threw in the fire, which did not make it able to be used for transportation by the flu network, unfortunately. It didn't blaze up, but made a sweet, drowsy smell that made it harder to think. Then she took out a musical instrument and began to play. And the more she played, the less you noticed it, and the more it got in your brain and blood. And then she began speaking in a sweet, quiet voice. She said there was no such place as Narnia, and when Puddleglum argued there was, He'd lived there his whole life. She asked him to tell her where that country is. Said it's up there somewhere. Uh, she is like, where? In the roof? In the stones? In the mortar? He answered it was in Overwhelm. She asked where, what or where this was. Scrub said she was being silly, that they'd met her there. And she said she had no memory of this, and it must have been a dream. The prince uh, butted in that he already told her he's the king's son of Narnia, but she replied he would be king of many imagined lands in his fantasies. And Jill said she'd been there, too, and when the queen asked her if she was a queen, she said, no, she's from another world entirely. Which said this was an even prettier game than the other, and asked what ships and chariots go between different worlds, and as Jill tried to think of all the things back in her own world, the enchantments sank deeper, and she couldn't recall the names of any of them. Soon she found herself saying the supposed that uh, that she supposed the other world must have been a dream. Soon the witch had Jill and Scrub both repeating that there never were any worlds for hers. Puddleglum said she could play all she wants, but he knew she, he's seen a sky full of stars and the sun coming up over the sea. The prince cried out that the grace of Aslan was upon the Marsh Wiggle because, of course, they had all seen the sun. And Scrub agreed that they had. Then came the witch's voice once more, questioning, what is this sun you speak of? Do you really mean anything by that word? And she asked him to tell her what it's like. And the prince explained that it was like the lamp, but it gave light to the overworld and hangs in the sky. 
And she pushed further, asking what it hangs from, saying that it even didn't even make sense. It was clearly a dream. It's just a large lamp that they're you know, creating. There is no sun. She repeated this until they said it too. It felt like a relief to give in and say it. For the last few minutes, Jill had been feeling there was something she must remember, but it's hard to hard to focus. And it's the words weren't, you know, weren't coming there. There's Aslan, they said. Aslan, and what a pretty name. She then pushed them into into seeing what this idea of, of a lion was and that it was actually just silly. It's, first, they imagined a large lamp as the sun, and now they imagined a, a large cat as a lion. And she reprimanded them for thinking such foolish things, and they stood with their head hung and then chanted, chanted almost complete. But Puddleglum gathered all his strengths and did something brave. He stamped out the fire with his webbed feet, burning them. And at this, the smell grew less intense uh, and, and more like burned Puddleglum, uh, which is an unfortunate smell. And help them to think a little bit clearer. Which yelled out in a terrible voice that she would turn his blood to fire for doing that. Which sounds painful. Uh, and the pain of the fire had made, had dissolved the magic in him though. And he said he's the kind of chap who always liked to know the worst. And put on the best face if he could. So he won't deny any of what she said. But suppose she was right. Suppose that they had only dreamed or made up Narnia and the sun and Aslan and the rest. And that her black pit of a kingdom was all there was. He said it strikes him that her world was a pretty poor one, that it rang hollow compared to the baby made up one that they had supposedly come up with. And so he's on Aslan's side, even if there is no Aslan. He's on the side of Narnia and will live as one as a Narnian, even if there is no Narnia. And so even if she's right, they're going to leave and look for the Overland, even if their lives end shortly and that uh, she claimed lives. And uh, at this, the, che- the kids cheered. But then, wouldn't you know it, Chase? The witch transformed into a large green snake. Who could have predicted such an outcome. She quickly wrapped herself around the, the prince, but luckily he caught its neck in his hand, and in the other, he used his sword? Okay, Dexterity. cool. Uh, and, and so him, Eustace, and Puddleglum all take turns stabbing and striking the snake. They didn't kill it at once, but eventually they were able to hack it enough to rip its head off so that the snake died uh, and that you know Rillian could escape. He thanked them for helping him avenge his mother because, you know what? I bet this was the same exact snake that hunted him all those years ago and that had killed his mother and taken him prisoner. And they're like, huh, probably. And they agreed to refresh themselves and then set to their plans. What were their plans? That's another story, Chase. Don't worry about it. Weirdly enough, Kel, this is the first time in the Narnian series so far that we have seen a witch die. That's true. And it only took half a page. They, like, I mean, we, still more than we got from the White still Witch. More, still more from the White Witch. who is Again, arguably, can't believe that that happened off screen in the main book. <laughs> the, the most famous book that he writes is like the, the, the plot climax is off screen. Still bothering. And we're four, ch- or we're four books later. Uh, we digress. Uh, but... All we do is uh, digress, know, Cal. That's all that we is do the is point digress of the podcast. We should rename this podcast "Digressing and Nitpicking" because uh, that's all we do. You know, that's what we're here for. But Chase, we see, uh, you know, uh, as uh, Rillian kicks the door open, we see two little Earthmen, and wouldn't you know it, the Queen, the the, the Green Lady, uh, standing in the. It's wild, you know. Uh, and it was she so looking, convenient that she wasn't there. I thought we were going to get out scot free and not have to worry about it. That would have been nice, but unfortunately, we got a you know snake's head to chop off. 
And sometimes Can't. you throw a party when your parents are out of town, but you don't realize that they uh, could come home early. And when and when they come home early, do you know what they're going to see? Three strangers, the prince freed from his bonds, and her favorite silver chair shattered in pieces. And she is not happy. I mean, look, who wouldn't be if you came home and found your favorite chair broken and random in your house that's and my, that's your son my favorite tied up? <laughs> That's my favorite. Be her her son husband. Uh, her uh, son husband kidnapping. Wh- whatever you want to identify him as. Yeah, he's one of those things. Are all of them? She's an immoral wow. being, so it's really hard to figure out like what age appropriate is there. Yeah, you know, yeah, as long it's as a like, twilight problem, if you will. Oof, gross. Uh, and moving yes, forward, those books are gross. <laughs> for they are indeed. Reasons. For multiple reasons, uh, but this is not a Twilight podcast, and never will be. Uh, but we, uh, she, she dismisses her her two henchmen, and they, you know, plot away obediently. And uh, she's like, "Oh, she, she, she goes straight into the act, and like, give her credit where credits due. She's great at it. She yeah, immediately puts on puts on the charm." She begins, you know, strolling around the room. She's like, oh, has your fit already ended or did you, has it not begun yet? And Prince Rillian, like, immediately goes into exposition mode where he's like, hey, I broke that chair because it was cursing me because you were cursing me. And I'm actually Prince Rillian of Narnia. My dad is Caspian. And I, I've been here for a long time. And I'm upset. Like, he's telling her all the things that she already knows. If she is the captive or the the the, uh, the captor, yeah, like, not an effective doing? escape plan. Um, no, that's something they do a couple times here that bugs me a little bit. They really lean hard on like court manners as the way yeah. out. <laughs> it's they're, like, like, yeah, what do you think? Saying like, we will have our leave if it be like if your grace would have it, like whatever, like if it's, if it's cool with you, evil sorceress, can we just leave? And I mean, she's like, where would I you guess to? fair. Most people don't think to ask, but like, there's a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Harry Potter ever was just like, Hey, Voldemort, Tom, what if we just didn't fight? And Voldemort was like, you know what? I've never thought of it that way. And then they sat down for a nice tea, talked over their issues. And Tom was like, wow, I never really realized that I was a genocidal maniac bent on, you know, elitist uh, values. Uh, Thanks for sharing this with me, Harry. And he was like, anytime, Tom. And man, if only they hadn't had that prophecy. Otherwise, do you think Sauron, do you think Sauron and and Frodo could have resolved their issues? He's like, hey, I'll give you the ring if you just like chill out. And so I was like, Hey, you know, I didn't realize that I wasn't being chill. My bad. I mean, look, if Galadriel was there, then, uh, it's <laughs> a different conversation. <laughs> Is Galadriel here? <laughs> the eye is actually not looking for the ring. It's just like, where, is Galadriel? Well, no, that's what they don't show you. Uh, most of the time, it's not looking for the ring. It's just stared straight at that forest. It's just looking at Lothlorien all the time. He's like, "Cool, 
Oh, I see Gladriel, re- Gladriel remarried to the same husband I mean, she was married to. Remarried. She's been married the whole time, just conveniently off at war, so she has permission to flirt. <laughs> flirt to convert, you know. Uh, she but tried. She did try, but we come back to Narnia. <laughs> and also uh, we major spoilers for <laughs> Rings of Power. For all, for all of those stories. Uh you know, who hey, you know, our bad. I don't think we said anything specific. We just referenced a lot of things. There's a lot of stuff. But, you know, it happens. Uh but again, as we as we mentioned, they are trying to basically convince the witch that they're going to leave, even though that like Rillian is aware that he has been bewitched by this lady and is being held captive for years. He has a sword in his hand, clearly meant to do damage. Just leave or attack her or something. Well, as we learn at the end of this, he didn't feel good about murdering a woman. Yeah. Who murdered his mom and who kept him captive, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is where maybe like you don't just be a feminist, kill the kill the queen. Yeah, hey. when, when it's an evil witch queen, it's it's cool. Just equal treat her like everyone else, else, you know. But uh, it's it, it is uh, so they they're trying to talk their way through this, but because of this, the witch who is now acting upon this idea of charm and deception she is crossed over to the to the side of the room she's grabbed a handful of green powder thrown it in the fireplace and immediately you know a a sweet aroma you know starts spreading its way through the room they begin getting dreary and forgetting a little bit and she picks up a little mandolin and starts strumming on it and it's really pretty and, and it's steady and monotonous and it's really it's really taking its toll, Chase. Kind of want to take a nap, but yeah, I'm just forgetting what we're talking about. And she's immediately like, she begins this arc over the next several pages, most of the pages of this chapter of gaslighting and of yeah. uh, immediately it's it's a gaslighting in 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 relativism, right? As we're going to discuss in a little bit, but also um, literally, she lights a fire that makes them just, think they're they're crazy. So she is like literally gaslighting them, uh, but she's like Narnia. Never heard of her, uh, and, and so she immediately is like, "This is you're crazy." We people talk about crazy things all the time when they're they're mad. You're so funny, Prince. Uh, and they're like, "No, we've we've lived there." And she begins to question Narnia and the overworld, and and Jill brings up this other place that they're from, this whole other world. And she's like, "Guys." This is this is wild. Y'all are so silly. These are things that you dream about. Uh, are you a, are you royalty too? And she's like, no, I'm just a normal person from another world. And she's like, that's hilarious. Like like you're you're so silly. Like why would you even believe this? And immediately, the kids and Puddleglum and and really, you know, start going. You know what? Maybe it is a dream. Maybe we were silly. Maybe we were being foolish. And she's like, of course you were. And then Puddleglum's like, no, 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 hold on, wait a minute. Like, I know that we've been there. I lived there. I, I, I've been in, 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 in Overworld, and he is throughout this chapter, our kind of force of faith. Yeah, for sure, the sun exists, right? We all remember the sun. Do you remember the sun? We stare at and, it all the time. And Rillian's like, 
of course, the sun, duh. And like, they're like, golly, the sun, of course. And she goes, tell me about this sun. Strum, strum. Tell me, tell me about it, right? I, I'd love to hear about this supposed sun. Uh, and they're like, well, it's kind of like a big lamp. Yeah, it's like a lamp, but like it's in the sky and it's like big, but it's also far away. And yeah, it's, uh, she really does like, I, I think it's, it's hard to explain. And I, I think after we kind of get through, we'll go back and pick apart some of this stuff a little bit more. But, uh, she does an actually compelling job of like, convincing them they're crazy like c.s lewis does a solid job of making it not dumb that she's questioning that exists and that's one of which like successes of this book is that like no like you see how like sure there's the enchantment side of it where like they are under the influence of they they've basically been drugged to no longer be able to think straight but like the way that she dismantles their arguments are things that we see in the real world. Right. And this is, we're going to, like Chase said, we're going to get into kind of the philosophical arguments in this chapter at the end of our plot discussion, or at least the first part of our plot discussion. Um, because she kind of does the same things over and over here, but it's reasonable. Right. And and, and that's the hard part of this is she's going like, uh, Oh, the, you know, sun just like a lamp hanging in the sky what's it hanging on was it hanging on a wire was it connected to and they're like well that's a good point right um and he he is using this chapter for several philosophical arguments which again we'll get into but after she dismantled the sun she's like they're like well maybe maybe there is no sun there there never was a sun there man what are what were we thinking about and jill is like man i feel like there's something there's an important word that i should be you think and she's like, oh, Aslan. And like this is you see a quick little break in the actor's performance before she gets back into yeah. into her zone, where she clearly the name Aslan has an impact, and she's quickening her pace of the strumming. And you can tell that that kind of shakes her, but then she yeah. immediately gets back into the zone. Yeah, you can kind of tell that she's gritting her teeth a little bit. Yeah, and I mean she pulls that apart too. She's like, what's a lion? Which it's interesting that she concedes that there's cats to be able to get rid of the idea of lions. Right. Uh, Because there are cats, presumably, in the underworld because there are all these creatures that have found their way. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe. Aslan is not the only lion that has existed in Narnia before. So maybe there's lions down there. There's at least one other one. I don't think it matters to this queen though i think she yeah. just wants to accomplish her task of getting them on board um, it's, uh, it's it's tough again because like we're we're almost at the point where we will discuss the philosophical you know arguments here but it's interesting that she is having this conversation with children and with a dummy uh and also with puddle glum uh and like because the the part of this that is you know important is going like what's a lion well it's kind of like a like a cat like a huge cat with a mane but not like a horse's mane but more like a judge's wig and it's yellow and it's really strong and she's like well that's dumb 
that's uh, like she's just like hey originally you thought of a lamp and then made it bigger now what you do what you do with a cat you made it bigger right um and she's like of course it's gonna be silly and it's gonna feel ridiculous and like uh, like and they're like oh maybe that is true yeah but look you could convince someone that like giraffes don't exist like totally what a a silly animal in the world (laughs) like there's there's things that like if you've never seen it in real life like if you were in the right state of mind you could be convinced like maybe that was just made up for like a movie or something yeah it's uh it's a whole uh it's a whole thing that like they're they're trying to make these arguments that feel very difficult because they're children uh, and they're not able to describe things the way that they would want to. Um, and, and so they're, they're stuck and eventually they're like, man, maybe we are actually wrong. It's hard for us to believe anything with certainty until our man puddle glum comes yeah. through with, the defining section of this whole book where he goes, you know what, who cares? Who cares if all of this is fake? You know, even if you're right, maybe that all the things we've talked about, maybe Narnia, the overworld and the sun and Aslan himself are all made up and they're all dreams. But do you know what those things that we're dreaming of and thinking of are better than this dreary, dark, like disgusting, horrible world that you have here. And so these things that we've all collectively thought of and imagined are better than your world. And that's what I'm going to pick. I'm going to stand by Aslan. Even if Aslan doesn't exist, I'm going to be a Narnian, even if Narnia doesn't exist. And so even if we die and you kill us shortly hereafter, we're going to spend the rest of our lives looking for Narnia and Aslan because it's better than what exists here. Yeah. And the rhetorical move he does there is really interesting and like a solid like regular world argument move of like even if the premise that you've submitted that i don't agree to were the case i still think that my position would be the more compelling way to live your life because the world that you've painted is not is not actually worth existing in or like the processes that you've proposed are not worth following. Um it it does like Puddle Glum's out here making lawyer moves. Yeah, Puddle Glum is he is the voice of C.S. Lewis making our philosophical retort, right? So now we finally get to the part where we you know wanted to because the first argument that we see the, the the queen making the witch making is this idea of the straw man the relativism chase would you like to describe kind of what that means first yeah well relativism in general as an idea is that like there is no absolute truth there is no kind of superseding reality or set of morals or or uh yeah truths that go above any other set of truths. So uh, this gets into, to get real nerdy for a second, uh, something called epistemology, which is the study of how you know what you know, and kind of the basics, the 
ideas of that revolve around like sources and questioning like whether you are gathering information in reliable ways but because it's based on a foundation of relativism you can peel that back to okay well you say you believe that i say i believe kel exists because i can see him right now but how can i trust my eyes or the computer connection or the fact that this isn't a really advanced ai chatbot that i've rigged up so i don't feel so alone um it's just <laughs> there there are ways that you can dismantle almost any way of, of knowing yeah. or understanding as a basis and she uses it here for the purpose of gaslighting which is yeah. its own kind of i don't know it's it's i think a really interesting way because he both does this and the, re the response in everything of going this is explaining these things to children, right? Because as we've, dis we've discussed throughout our, our podcast, um, and even though we are adults nitpicking this children's book, it's a children's book. Yeah. Ch like C.S. Lewis is explaining deep philosophical, theological ideas to children. How do you explain relativism and this idea that people are going to question that you can't know anything for certain, including God, right? including yeah. Jesus, your faith, you can't know these things for certain. And the answer is you're, you're right. We can't know anything for certain because that's, you know, that's where faith enters in. But yeah. any belief system that you have requires faith, including relativism. And like the, in, 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 in what you pursue after that, everything requires faith. And that's where, you know, Jesus and God step in. Uh, and in the Christian faith and, and everything there. Uh, but this idea of going like, if there is any source of doubt, something doesn't exist. That's the, the straw man argument of going like, this is the, the weakest possible thing. If there is a flaw in the system, let me attack that flaw. And therefore nothing else can exist. Right. Um, just when because the answer actually comes down to like, okay, well, what source of truth are you willing to give credence to? Like, at what point are you willing to kind of open up to an authority that is not your own mind? Um, right. I think it'd be interesting and to kind of pull apart the different individual conversations they have just to be like, okay, well, what what is the argument that C.S. Lewis is paralleling here to yeah. kind of unfold a little bit? Because, like, the first one is she asks, well, where is this Narnia? And they say, well, it's up there. And she's like, okay, well, up where? In the ceiling? Like, And what she's getting at here is this idea of heaven. And I, at least that's how I kind of interpret it, is he's getting to the idea of like, well, what, you just go into the sky when you die? Like, what do you mean heaven? Like, is it in the clouds? And kind of getting at the like, well, how can you believe in an existence that we have no you can't see we have no physical evidence of heaven existing unless you read some really niche christian <laughs> christian books that i consider fiction um but that's just to lose the other half of our audience um <laughs> but it's it you're you're right it's the idea of like it's believing in what you cannot see right and that's the 
whether it's heaven, whether it's God, whether it's whatever, it's it's this idea of dismantling something because it's not in front of you, right? Uh, because you know, it's it, it if you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't you know whatever, then it doesn't exist. And they'll then they she moves from there into this. Well, no, we have these experiences, we have these memories, we've been there, we've done that. And she then goes, well, no, those are dreams. Those are fake. Those are false realities. Those are fantasies that you've created. Uh, and it's it's the it's the questioning and really the gaslighting. It's of of testimony of going. Your testimony is invalid because it was fake. It was implanted. It was. It's just. It's wishful thinking. Yeah, you say you had this experience, or God showed up in, for you in this way, or or you've seen this kind of thing in your life, and. Well, I mean, maybe you're just remembering it that way because you want to believe that that's true. Maybe you're just you're just trying to connect dots that aren't there. And uh, yeah, these are and the then, kind of things that shape people's faith. Yeah, and like especially when you're faced not just with people questioning, but like a trauma or something that occurs. It's like, is what I actually experienced real? Or was I just hoping that it was real because things were good or, you know, that made me feel better at the time. But now that my mom died, now that my parents are getting divorced, now that like I'm dealing with this sickness, these things don't matter anymore, right? These experiences, they don't apply, right? So she attacks this. The next thing she attacks is lack of knowledge, right? And being able to explain things and and describe things, right? She's attacking people of going like, What's what's the sun? It's this ball of light hanging in in the sky. What's it hanging off of? Hanging is not the right word to use that. Yeah. But like they don't have a better one. Well, it's yeah. it's like a lamp. Well, lamps are physical, tangible things that exist on the ground. They can't have a lamp in the sky. That's ridiculous. And then yeah. a lion. Get like, into things like miracles or even just like the existence of God or things that are not seen. Like if you don't have a PhD in some kind of biology or, or whatever, you must not be able to, which I mean, the people you're talking to who use these arguments also don't have any kind of uh, record to be able to say the other way, but they want to mock your intelligence for believing something that's outside of their perception and therefore you must be dumb yeah and and so she she's she is questioning and making the like the arguments that people who are questioning faith will often make of going can't see it it doesn't real you're you know if if i can't experience these things and then it's not real like how could like if it's not repeatable kind of thing or you know how do you know that anything is real uh if you don't know then if you can't explain then it's, it can't exist right like how, if you if you can't provide like hey what did happen at time t equals zero like god just created things like okay well we didn't see it happen like how can you explain what god did like yeah. then like then that that can't happen you know and yeah. eventually like this line here just uh jump in on that train like yeah she says, what is the sun that you all speak of? Do you mean anything by that word? And you could easily replace sun, which in the chapter, sun is in italics. You could easily replace that with what is this God that you speak of? Like, what do you even mean by that? 
what is this? What are, what are angels that you speak of, or like what right. is heaven that you? What is right? Uh, yeah. What what is the Holy Spirit that you think speak of? Like, right. What do you even mean by that? Like, and because these are concepts that go beyond what we what we can fully speak to in human terms like it is complicated like it's complicated to stand on that when you're being pushed back on in that way yeah this chapter is basically c.s lewis's first few chapters of mere christianity where if you replace narnia overland sun aslan with god the existence of god straight up like that is like he is going through kind of his arguments in mere christianity of, of like these are the reasons why people wouldn't believe and these are the reasons people, you know, question why God exists. And, you know, he he will he deals with these questions throughout the series as a whole of going like, well, bad things happen. Where was Aslan? Where has Aslan been? It's been winter for, you know, forever with no Christmas. Where is Aslan? Does Aslan even exist? You know, they, these are the they are he is going through all these things and eventually answering them with the arguments for God. Right. So do you have anything else on the, the witches arguments before we get into puddle glum and the greatest conceivable being are like Um let's see. I think the last one I just wanna hit is um the like the I love cats. Uh so she when they bring up Aslan basically just says okay, well, you're just taking things that you see in the room or things that you do know about and blowing them up to bigger proportions to claim that. So the way you tend to see this is like, well, like you believe there is a God just because you want to believe that there's some kind of authority structure or moral structure bigger than the world that we currently live in because that's comforting to you but that doesn't actually mean it's there and that's like the big man in the sky theory of uh oh well you know that like judges or kings or like like people who like meet your emotional needs exist and you just want to believe that there's a bigger version of that because it makes you feel good yeah um totally and when we so we we finish with the witch's arguments and then you get Puddleglum, who in his little monologue expresses, I would say, at least three different philosophical argument responses uh, of going. There is the idea of testimony. Right. There's the idea of collective thought. And then there's the idea of the greatest conceivable being. Right. Which there is. These are uh, let's just well, you know, those are the, the layman's term is kind of versions of these things. But personal testimony is one of the only things you can't rebuff. He says, well, we've experienced these things. We've done these things. Uh, like, even if those things aren't true, we still believe these things, right? These things happen, right? Your testimony is one of the few things that people can't really refute that well because it's your experiences. They can say, well, you you know, you imagine these things. You're putting these, you're putting words to these things. But ultimately, you're the only one who can attest to your own experiences. And like, you're the only, like there, people can make questions about them and can have, you know, well, this is actually what you experienced, but truly, you are the only one who's ever lived your life. And that's one of the things that he's saying. Second, he's going through the idea of collective thought. He's like, we've all imagined this. We've all thought about the same things. We all have the same ideas about the sun and Aslan and Narnia and Overworld. And like, if if 
that is an idea of like, why would all of us have the same thoughts about these things? Why would everyone like, and the idea of like, if people around the world are praying to a God, wouldn't that like, and we, and we haven't talked to each other. If there's something fundamental to the human experience across time and space that makes people believe that there is a higher power in these specific ways that acts in this specific way, maybe there's something existentially there. Right. Of like, we don't have like a, we don't have a photograph to look at. Right. And, and, you know, you can even look at the idea of like, what is the human response during crisis? Prayer. Yeah. It like, regardless of what you believe in, it is, please let this not happen. Please let this be better. Who are you requesting these from? Right. There is, it is inherent to our soul to pray. It is inherent to our soul to worship. We long for something to celebrate, to make better, to make bigger than ourselves. Why? That's not, that doesn't make sense physiologically. Doesn't make sense scientifically or, you know, evolutionary wise. It's just our, we, we long for something to celebrate, to make better than us. It doesn't propagate our species to, uh, To try to, to worship an imaginary being, right? And, but like worship exists across cultures, and so it's this idea of collective thought that he's well, was like, well, all of us thought these things separately, uh, and all have these same ideas. And then the the one that he lays on the most, which is it's it's having gone through seminary classes and you know philosophical you know argument classes and things like that, and theology and why I believe in God. Uh, the you know all the ontological arguments and things like that this is one that like i i am personally not the biggest fan of but it is a argument that is a big deal in the philosophical world of the greatest yeah. conceivable being it's like, the broad premise i feel you i will yeah. a- after you explain what it is i'll yeah. i'll share that i have pulled this card before though sure and and I get why it's pulled. Oh yeah, I just I think me, it can be very... used in a specific way. I think totally. the broad pro- I think it can be campy if it's used poorly. Totally. For me, it's the so I'll explain it real quick and then explain yeah. why. Sure, uh, sure. So it is the greatest conceivable being is basically that if I can think of something that is better than what exists here. And now that thing must exist because first existing versus just being thought is better than like, than like, or like something existing is better than something being fake. So if some, like a greater being has to be one that exists than one that is fake. Uh, And the greatest conceivable being therefore would be one that exists and is all powerful and, uh, you know, all these things. And if you can think of it, if you can think of a being that is all powerful and all loving and all creating, then it would be better if that thing existed. And so therefore, like, this is a very choppy, very like basic form of the argument. Yeah. And I think that kind of basic form falls apart pretty easily just because the reality is not everything you want to exist or can conceive of does in fact exist. unicorns for example as much as we love it uh that you know of we we are creative beings because we're made in the image of a creative being 
Right. So sometimes we uh, we can come up, but that said, uh, I think the appealing side to this, as far as like where I've found it helpful, kind of comes down to. So I'll, I'll bring up another book before coming back around to it. So uh, there's a book called The Righteous Mind that I read a few years ago that has really influenced the way I think about some things uh, about really the premise of like, we like to think that we are these purely rational brains on a stick. Like we make our decisions and prefer the things we prefer and all this stuff for these moral, rational, good reasons when actual psychology and like, like studies have shown like, no, actually most people make the decisions they make, do the things they do, believe the things they believe because they follow their gut and then use their big brains to rationalize the decisions that they made because of their gut feelings. And so that book kind of explores kind of why, why can two perfectly rational people using rational means come to different conclusions about the same topic because they have different kind of, he uses the framework of like taste buds, like morally, and then can justify either direction. The reason I bring that up <laughs> is that I think the like idea of greatest possible being or greater possible being can come into play when you think about the fact that a lot of people don't reject God because they have a rational basis to reject God because there's just as many ways to point to the suggestion of a creator as the non-suggestion of a creator. A lot of people want to reject God or a lot of people reject God because they want to reject God or because they are nervous about what it would mean for the world or for themselves or for what it calls on them if that God were to actually exist. So it's easier to kind of wave that off so that you can live the way you want to live. And where I've found it helpful is to point out like, okay, well, if you're, if, if, you were wanting to have some kind of higher power authority in the world. Wouldn't a God like the God who is merciful and just and forgiving and putting others before themselves? Like, isn't that the kind of being that you would want to serve if you were looking for like a basis for morality? Cause at the end of the day, we want a basis for morality at, on some level. That's one. kind of where I've seen it come around a little bit. Sure. It's like being helpful. I don't totally. think it's the go-to best way to do apologetics. But it's like I've had conversations before where it's come down to, well, I just don't think God is actually like a moral thing because there's a war in the world and why would he allow that? And then you can come back around to, okay, well – what do you actually know about God? Because the God that I believe in actually is really anti those things as well. And in fact, seems to be like really just and merciful and working out a really complex long-term plan for those problems that we agree yeah. are bad to be solved. Yeah. I like it more as a moral argument for God than I do for a existence of God yeah. argument. I 
I think the moral argument for God would be the better way to frame it than because, the existence argument. Because yeah, because like you said at the beginning, greatest conceivable being isn't really a like easy way to prove existence. Right. Because there are there are many arguments that I would go to before that one for the existence of God. Because I can think of a lot of things. I like make first mover a lot more than I like greatest conceivable being. Right. Yeah. The co- the the uncaused cause. Yeah. Like. That's I. That is my favorite in existence. But the moral argument, I will agree. It's like that's a good one for explaining like why God is like. It's like for me, that's the argument of like knowing that the world is the way that it is. I need to believe, and this is kind of where Puddle Glum goes in the chapter. Is like I need to believe, and I would much rather believe that God does exist, knowing that all of these things in the world are the way they are. Because if not, that means that the world is powerless too evil into things that are like wicked and and you know terrible like tsunamis like war like genocide like the we're yeah. just at the whims of people like that as opposed to being like hey i need to believe that god is real and that god does exist and that not only those things but he's good and that he's in control of going he is better than those things and he will redeem things in spite of evil like that I like that argument much more than I do. Yeah, well, God has to exist because I thought of it, you know. Yeah, because otherwise, <clears throat> counter like the rational counter. If like there's humanist arguments, but the rational counter, like when you actually boil it down, is yeah. if God is dead. Then nihilism is the answer. Like if everything, right. if there is no superseding meaning, then there is no foundation like there is no true meaning and therefore like we it, are responsible everything's fair game create our own meaning but it really yeah. doesn't matter at the end of the day and that's yep. not not a great way to live like that is the dark it's not optimistic wanna, yeah that you'd rather live in a world that has meaning than doesn't have meaning even the answer for the nihilist is to create your own meaning yep. rather than to like the nihilist is still pulling a puddle glove even if they're not to be to be a God. practical nihilist, I think, is almost impossible because yeah. uh, no one actually lives that way, right? But you mentioned, like, you, I think that's the the perfect way to end Puddle Glove's argument is like, we are people of meaning and we search for it. Even, and we, that's why we have faith in going, you know what? I'm going to walk this way, even if it doesn't always make sense, even if I don't understand it. This is better. This is, this is the better path forward. Um, and that's where, you know, Puddle Glum goes. He's like, I am an Aslan follower. I'm a Narnian and I'm going to go that direction. Even if we die, knowing that not like knowing we, if we die, not having found any of these things. Yeah. Even and if we ever got out of the darkness, it was worth it for them. It was worth it. Their little because, quad, like. Because the thought of Aslan and the thought of Narnia is better than what exists. Yeah. And by doing that, they are themselves to pull in kind of my concept of the church they are an outpost of narnia in in the dark world absolutely they are are there to be the counterculture to the dark world even if narnia hasn't broken into the dark world yet but chase do you know what has broken into the dark world now a giant green snake lady yeah she didn't like puddle glum's point so to abruptly switch because there's not really a great way to go from philosophical, you know, moral arguments to the rest of this chapter because C.S. Lewis doesn't do any kind of transition. They're just like, Hey, look at the witch. 
And all of a sudden, what happens? They turn, and the witch is transformed into the giant green snake. Oh no, it's Nagini. <laughs> Nagini, dinner. Right? So, you would think, Chase, that this is where the chapter would end on a cliffhanger. It would and be. they would fight the snake in the next chapter. Yeah. You would think that. No. You'd be wrong. She, they they just chop, they, they get her off of him and immediately chop her head off. <laughs> yeah. They, like, we'll give him credit where credit's due. He shows the witch die this time. Yeah. But we are also going to spend as much time on this section as C.S. Lewis does, which is minimal. The reason this podcast is going to be 80% philosophical arguments and minimal like percent of the queen or the witch dying is because it lasts two paragraphs. The witch turns into a snake, wraps up Rillian, but Rillian's arms are free. And even though it's as she's as thick as uh as Jill. Jill he grabs her neck with one hand yeah he grabs a like this is the f- the physical part where it's like you kind of painted yourself into a corner here Clive he grabs the snake's neck which is as thick as a human body with yeah. one hand and but restrains you it you can't edit so this is all has to be once you say it it's real listener i want you to hold up your hand and i want you to put it next to your body and I want you to think, could you just squeeze a human body with, like, not your neck, your, like, your torso, your, your gut with one hand and go, you are now completely constrained. Unless you have Andre the Giant's hands, this is ridiculous. And then in the other hand, he grabs his sword and, be, and him... Eustace and Puddleglum, really just him and Puddleglum, because it makes it goes out of its way to say that Eustace is once again useless, that his sword strikes don't actually pierce skin. So him, like Rillian and Puddleglum, then begin to hack at the snake's neck with their swords until the head chops off the snake. And then he's like, ah, thanks, guys. That was probably the snake that killed my mom. So it's nice to have avenged her. Cool. And they're like, yeah, totally. Uh, All right, should we like plan? And that's when the chapter ends. Yep. Great cliffhanger. So frustrating, Chase. We have spent 12 chapters going, there is a snake. The snake is the, the enemy. We spend, I think, two chapters with this woman. One when she is a woman and the Black Knight and they're riding through. And then another when she is now in the cave like enchanting them and turns into a snake in that same chapter, tries to attack them, dies within a page. Yeah. I mean, JK Rowling took this and ran way better with it. It's uh, (laughs) every snake (laughs) battle in the Harry Potter books are much more compelling. If you, if you want to see what this chapter should have been, I encourage you to read the Basilisk chapters of chamber of secrets or the Nagini chapters at the end of deathly hallows. Yeah. Or just read the entire Harry Potter series because it's great. It is great. But that's where our book ends, Chase. Uh, and, and, and here we are. Or that's where the chapter ends. And yeah, we, still still have, we still have three chapter or four chapters left in a book where the silver chair, the titular silver chair is destroyed and the witch has been killed. Yeah. The witch is well, dead, the chair is broken, and we've rescued the prince, and we've got four chapters. <laughs> What are we gonna do for four chapters? Chase, We're I feel walk like our the woods. <laughs> I feel like our next four chapters might be you and me 
like putting this thing on fast forward. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't think the audience would complain. Uh, we, we'll we'll let you know, audience. But before we do, Chase, would you like to dive further up and further in for us? I would love to. All right. For my further up and further in, I just wanted to talk briefly about this idea of hypnotism in story, which I mean, we all know it's a common trope. The villain hypnotizes the good guys to try to get them distracted from their mission or or defeat them in some way. Uh, it's a classic Saturday morning cartoon move. Uh, and I mean, every now and then you'll see it with a good guy um or at least someone who becomes a good guy but because i thought of like the force in star wars it being used as kind of like a mind control i mean people with strong minds can't be affected by the force but you know uh but kel pointed out the snake and jungle book uh hypnotizes mowgli and apparently the hypnotic powers of snakes is just a thing which i mean if you our snake charmer, we want to hear from you. Please follow, like, subscribe, and comment on all of our posts about your snake charming skills. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we see like in Civil War in uh, in the Marvel franchise with Bucky being uh, mind controlled with his uh, Soviet past and being used as a weapon, uh, even though he is a good guy on the whole in the franchise uh, or spoiler alert, because this is a more recent franchise WandaVision um, where you have Wanda using her powers to uh, basically mind control, mind wipe an entire city for the kind of expression of her grief and everything that plays out in that series. Um, but yeah, hypnotism is a popular thing in story. It's almost always used by the bad guy with the exception of star Wars. And I mean, it's questionable whether they should be using it in star Wars. Um, but generally if you are taking away someone's free will in a story, you are not, not on, ideal. No, not on the side of right. 99.9% of the time. Unless you're Obi-Wan, man. Uh, in which case, hello there. What you want. Uh, yeah, mine is going to be pretty quick. Uh, we spent a lot of time in this chapter talking about um, you know belief and faith and everything. Mine is basically the idea of faithfulness in fiction in spite of doubt and how it's generally rewarded, right? Uh, faithfulness is a good quality and uh, you know, people appreciate that. In, and what this means is even in the face of something where you're like, man, you probably rationally, reasonably should abandon hope or you should make another decision, right? You decide to be faithful and it pays off, right? Uh, this is uh, obviously in this story, it's it's Glum and the crew going, hey, we are remaining faithful to Aslan and to Narnia, even when it doesn't make sense logistically, necessarily. It's way, it'd be easier to just concede it would probably spare your lives potentially right if you know they didn't hack off the witch's head um but it it would be the easier safer thing to do and there is no aslan there there is no narnia present with them so they could just make that decision and harry potter um there's a point later on in the series where uh the ministry post uh umbridge is trying to get harry to like get back on their side and uh, and to you know join forces 
uh, and they will make this claim. And so will Voldemort at another point where Harry makes the claim, I'm Dumbledore's man through and through. He remains faithful, even though Dumbledore has not really given him a lot of reason to be faithful other than the fact that he's just Dumbledore. Right. The fact that he is. Yeah. Like uh, Chase is writing on his hand right now uh, because, you know, the ministry is has has proved themselves not trustworthy because they're the ones that sent Umbridge. Uh, and Dumbledore is the one that has been wise and has been making the plan. Right. But Dumbledore is also the one that's been sending uh, a teenager to go fight a giant snake and to, uh, you know, face Voldemort as an 11 year old uh, and in doing these things and has not revealed any reason why. Uh, but he is still D- Dumbledore's man through and through. And what does Harry get rewarded with? Victory. It follows through. It, uh, it, well, eventually victory. Uh, after a lot of suffering. You're going to suffer, but you're going to be happy about it. Um, and so you, you have Harry that you even, you know, if you want to go to the Star Wars examples of going like, Luke is faithful to Obi-Wan, to Yoda, to uh, to the Force, to being a Jedi. Even when, like, logistically... What have they done for him? Not much, you know, not not a ton. Uh, his dad is like, bro, come join me. You and me could be very powerful. They could have conquered Sidious very quickly, very easily, and they could have been ruled. It would have been great. He's reunited with his daddy. Like, that's awesome. We, but we nope. need an alternate timeline sequel series where they Vader live oh, and they team up and rule the galaxy. I'm sure there's some fanfic out there for you, Chase. Mark, but this idea... Of, of remaining faithful in spite of overwhelming evidence against you or reason working against you and then being rewarded for it because faithfulness is something to be rewarded and something to be noted because that is a good, strong value. Uh, but Chase, we've kicked open the door. We've seen the witch. We've almost been put to sleep by this podcast because there are be no real. other podcasts. There are no other podcasts. There are no other podcasts. What's a, what's a podcast? You're right, Chase. I I even know what I was talking about. I See, it's like I thought I knew, video, but it's not, and anyone can do it, and everyone. I, there was there were places that I thought you could find podcasts like Apple and Audible and Apple Music where you could find ours, but maybe I've just been dreaming that. Or I thought we had an Instagram page at the Chronicles of Narnia where you could keep up with all the things that we were doing, but maybe Instagram doesn't really exist either. It's just part of the matrix. And I thought we were talking to each other right now, but. Maybe I'm just crazy, Chase. Probably. Mainly because it's Chronicles of Podcast, not Chronicles of Narnia. But that is the series we're talking about. That, uh, you know, listen, Chase. Look, it's been a long morning. I get it. It's been a long morning. And, uh, you know, as I, you know, philosophically contemplate, you know, my existence in the world, we'll wait for the next podcast to come out. My iPad is literally like about to die, so I'm gonna try to reconnect on my phone real quick. You can just keep the same meeting. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. It'll be fun when this part is in the podcast. Now I'm by myself, wandering, wondering. Just here. This is the Chase Show. Welcome to the Chase Show. Today we're gonna talk about uh gaslighting. Kel has gaslit me into believing that uh, that we even have a podcast. And the reality is we haven't had a podcast this whole time. You know, and that's the thing about fascism. It just kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, 